Hello, and welcome to the Black and Dyslexic Podcast with Winifred A. Winston and LaDerek Horn, the show that unapologetically focuses on helping Black and underrepresented minorities navigate the special education process. We want to help raise awareness in the Black and Brown community, remove the stigma about learning disabilities, and provide you access to professionals in the space of dyslexia and special education that you need to hear from. Today, we're going to be talking to our co-host, LaDerek Horn, and you'll get to hear his story and his journey with advocacy and being, guess what, Black and dyslexic. So, LaDerek, tell the people about yourself. Well, I am an advocate for people with disabilities. I work on the uh, national, state, and local level, do a lot of work within uh, school districts and working with different agencies. And some of that work has also taken me outside the United States. I'm uh, an author, so I'm the co-author of the book, Empowering Students with Hidden Disabilities, A Path to Pride and Success, that was published by Brooks Publishing Company. And uh, I'm also very well known as being a spoken word poet. And so I, I use my poetry to help in doing this, this advocacy work. So that's, that's me in a nutshell. Oh, and then, then I'm also... Uh, very black and very dyslexic. <laughs> I've been my whole life <laughs> planned to die that way. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, so look, a spoken word poet growing up dyslexic. And we know when you have dyslexia, it's a language-based learning disability that impacts the ability to learn how to read, write, and spell. And you are a spoken word, a published spoken word poet. Like, folks can purchase your poetry. So yeah. how did you get from a child being diagnosed with dyslexia in special education to now a spoken word poet, right? And, and you say you're doing advocacy and you're speaking, so, and you're an author. Like, you're hitting all of the things that directly work against or that might work against someone, right, who has dyslexia. Yeah. So tell us about that. Yeah, I'll do you one better. I also... You know, went to college and earned a degree in mathematics, um, <laughs> and, and and I struggle with basic math. So go go figure. Um, first, I would say that if you actually look through the history of poets and writers, that you'll see a pretty good throughput of dyslexics. Um, we tend to to show up, and there are different people who have, you know, kind of put different theories out there about why that is, you know, it could be that part of the proficiency comes through the struggle with, with language. I like to think that I have always been a poet. Um, I know that as a child, I loved very well-crafted dialogue on television and in movies. I grew up in a family full of storytellers. Um, and, you know, just like, you know, jingles and just, you know, like anything that was just sort of like, an interesting turn of phrase. I remember just, it lit me up. And then my father had an amazing record collection and a record collection that I inherited. And, and I was blessed that he uh, was interested in a very diverse set of, um, you know, singers, songwriters, different performers. Uh, Dad ran the radio. So I ended up growing up listening to the music that he listened to as a kid and as a young man. So, you know, I, uh, you know, folks laugh at me because I know way too many like doo-wop songs and <laughs> um, I'm pretty well versed in Motown and, and that sort of stuff. So 
I think that I've, I've just always enjoyed language. It was always there, but I was diagnosed early on, you know, when I was, I was really young, I was about nine years old. And, um, my experience passing through special education just made me very fearful of writing because of my challenges around spelling. And I didn't really know that it was okay to just explore writing. Um, you know, like if you couldn't get past the spelling, it's what I grew up just thinking. If you couldn't get past the spelling, then, you know, you, you, you really weren't even allowed to sort of, you know, explore this, this area of creative writing or, or what have you. So, so I didn't really push myself as a poet, you know, although I didn't see myself as a poet, I, I, I was, you know, a black boy in special ed and I was surrounded by other black boys and everybody wanted to be an MC. And I, and I grew up with like amazing rappers, like these guys, just very, very talented wordsmiths. And I think they could probably see within me lyrical ability that I didn't recognize. And so they were constantly sort of encouraging me to jump in the cipher and to try to drop my little corny freestyles. And, and I realized very early on that I did not have the, uh, the mental dexterity to do that. But I got to, I got to college. Well, I knew I couldn't dance. So, uh, and I, I'm fortunate that, um, yeah, the, the just just, you know, remarkably talented, intelligent, you know, my peers uh, just, you know, always encouraged me to try to write. But but it wasn't writing. It was more like, you know, it was like these guys, these guys wrote, but I just I, I couldn't see it. I just couldn't see how to do it. You know, I just couldn't conceptualize it. But I was fortunate that I graduated from high school and then went on to a local county college that had a, an amazing support program for students with disabilities and there were so many things that happened for me sort of like all at the same time as being a part of that program. So the first was, is that I got a real clear understanding about what it meant to be dyslexic. Um, I, for the first time got to connect in a very meaningful way with a group of young people who had minds similar to my own. And then I had a counselor who just said, stop worrying about spelling and just write, just write what you want to write. And then we'll deal with the spelling later. And that was the permission that I needed to explore writing. And so, so I- uh, This happened in K-12. This happened in college. It happened in college. I was 18 college. years so, old. So what was K-12 like not having any of that? Because in my mind, I'm immediately thinking, well, dang, you should have been given permission to, you know, not worry about the spelling in K-12 as you learn, right? How was that experience in K-12 not having that? It tore me up. It was, uh, it was something that led to a lot of depression and a lot of fear um, because, you know, I, I, I knew the closer I got to graduation, the more uncertain I felt about my life, you know, and uh, I think, you know, so many of us with dyslexia, we also wrestle with a lot of mental health issues, right? And I think some of that comes about because many of us just don't see a path forward. You know, I, I grew up thinking that I, I might not live to be 25. Right. You know, and I was seeing my peers who had been, I've been in special ed with for, you know, many, many years, you know, some of them were dropping out, they were having kids, they were, you know, they were getting involved in criminal activity. There, there was also, you know, kind of stuff like that going on, but I, I needed that. It would have made things a lot easier for me. Um, it would have healed a lot of wounds if uh, an educator could have given me that permission earlier on. You hit on a key the, thing. They were dropping out. They were basically going to the streets 
you know, and we know, we know there was a study done recently in Texas, 80% of the inmates were illiterate and 40% were dyslexic. So we know that kids who are struggling, they act out. Some shut down. Um, like you said, they're depressed. They're acting out. They're angry. And we know that black children, black boys, especially, they don't even look at the learning disability or try to figure out about that. It's behavioral. And right. it's, oh, you're um, emotionally disturbed. All yeah. right. They'll have a behavior plan versus a learning plan. Right. I mean, that's just astounding to me that when you were in school, that's how it was. And here we are in 2021. And that is still most often the case for black and brown children. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And I and I was here and I still live in central New Jersey, grew up in central New Jersey. And for us, it was Jamesburg. We were constantly um, sort of scared into acting well, because if you didn't, there was a, a youth correctional facility in Jamesburg that was just waiting for you. And, um, you know, there are advocates now working to try to shut that place down. You know, there was uh, a constant sort of fear that the streets were there and the streets were, were waiting. And, it, and I think, again, our, our population, people with dyslexia, we're in this unique situation where uh, we are highly represented both within the criminal justice system and then also within the C-suites of corporations, you know, Absolutely. and those of us who are able to get the supports that we need, um, given that, you know, benefit of a doubt, right? And, you know, and then the tools, you know, we're capable of doing remarkable things. So I was, I was fortunate, you know, I was fortunate that although I didn't get that permission to explore my uh, full academic potential or my creative potential as a writer, that I was still able to be resilient enough to get to, you know, to being a young adult and then finally getting it in, in college. And, I, and I'll also just, if I can just add, I, I think that the, um, the combination of that permission, as well as being given concrete tools, right? Like I, I, started using accommodations for the first time. So, you know, was introduced to things like speech to text, but for me, really just being able to run my writing through a word processing program and utilize spell check. And then um, being, again, some of this is permission, also feeling, feeling like it was okay for me to ask for help, right? Like that I could write a first draft and it could be full of mistakes and I could show that to someone and they could help me to work through it. I didn't realize um, like, you know, one of my favorite writers is Toni Morrison. Mm -hmm. And I remember being a college student going to see Morrison. And, you know, one of the first books that I read, paper books that I read cover to cover was Sula. And um, <laughs> I was hanging out with my boy, Rasan. Shout out to Rasan. And uh, we were somewhere in Jersey City in like some apartment. This guy had moved out. It was like Rasan's friend. His father owned the apartment. And this person had a copy of Sula that they had like left in this apartment. And I picked up this old raggedy copy and read it. And I remember going to see Morrison do a talk at Rutgers University and just being in awe of who she was and her ability. And through the course of that, that talk, she talked about her relationship with her editor. And I remember thinking like, whoa, 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 Toni Morrison's got an editor? You mean these stories, these novels, those amazing pages don't just fall out of her perfectly? <laughs> from the first draft, you know, 
And it, it helped to sort of reiterate what I had heard in the support program, uh, the college support program for students with disabilities that I was a part of, was that writing's a process. And just as a dyslexic, the portion that's uh, associated, uh, that, that process that's associated with editing is just going to be more protracted for, for us than, than other people. But all of us need someone to help us hone our writing. Right. Um, and so that was I mean, th- th- those were sort of conceptual shifts that had to happen within me in order for me to be able to to really tap into this to this ability that I think was always there. Oh, that is awesome. That is awesome. I want to talk a little bit now about about your advocacy. Right. Because as a mom with a child with dyslexia and ADHD, um, I'm boggled down with trying to make sure she get what she needs. Right. But then I also have it in my spirit to help others. Right. So I just make it work. And then I talk to others who are so consumed with their own struggles. Right. Or parents who are so consumed with their child's struggle that they don't even have enough in them to try to help others. Right. And so you talk about your struggles in school, how it kind of turned around for you uh, in college. And now you're like an international advocate. Like you've gone out of the country helping. So what motivated you and said, you know what? I want to help others who are similar to me or like me. Tell me about your advocacy. I think a lot of it, again, sort of came about during that time in college. So I was, you know, I came of age in a household that embraced the black arts movement and the civil rights movement and the black liberation movement. And so I spent a lot of time as a young person sort of contemplating the work of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and Marcus Garvey and folks like that. And I get to college and um, I'm, I'm again, sort of simultaneously thrust into a situation where I'm beginning to develop an identity as a dyslexic through this disability support program. And then I'm also able to connect to really just profound mentors that were um, uh, many of them, you know, people of color, African-American and Latino uh, men and women who uh, helped to support my developing sort of black consciousness, my black identity. Um, so, you know, many of these people I still count as my mentors today, you know, folks that I can still reach out to. Um, and I think, you know, I'm mentioning this because for me, all of it, right? Like if you spend any time sort of digging in to the history of people with disabilities, the the history of the disability rights movement, you realize that, you know, like special education today only exists because there were advocates out there fighting who said that it is not in line with America's best ideals for us to have segregated schools or, or, or places where, you know, like there was a time in American history where people with disabilities, particularly more profound disabilities, could not be educated with their non-disabled peers. Um, you know, uh, there were a lot of institutions that were broken down because of, you know, a, a movement of people, you know, trying to create that change. And so, you know, I, I began to sort of see myself um, within the context of those those two movements, you know, civil rights and um, black liberation movement, as well as the disability rights movement. And then just on a real like concrete level the young people who were a part of this program that I was in, a bunch of us used to uh, just sort of hang out on Fridays. And, um, and then we started talking about going back and, and talking to, to high school kids at our old high schools um, about what our experience was like in, in college. And so a bunch of us would just cram in a bunch of cars and we would go back to our old high schools and we'd talk for 45 minutes to an hour 
with high school kids about what our experiences have been. And I just remember, I remember those classrooms being packed, standing room only, you know, and none of us were professional speakers. Uh, at that time, I, you know, I had begun writing some of my first poems. And so I had to, I'd begun to develop a bit of stagecraft, but I, you know, I didn't have any, any kind of professional training or background. And it would be like, maybe 10 of us in the front of this room and you could see it. You could see in the eyes of those young people that they began to realize that the future was wide open for them. And it was just, it just came about from many of us just sharing our experiences, um, them being able to see an example of what, what their lives could be. Um, And so I mean, that's, that's how it started for me. You know, that's how it started. And then I started out at a local county college, spent five years there, and then finished my degree at New Jersey City University. And my last semester there, the university um, hosted a conference for students with disabilities every year. And I was on another, another panel. And then um, uh, Bill Freeman from the New Jersey Department of Education, um, Office of Special Education, saw me on that panel and invited me to go speak at a, a conference. And I did well there. And then um, his coworker, Bob Hall, heard that I did well. And they offered me an opportunity to speak at a series of student leadership conferences that we do here in New Jersey every spring called Dare to Dream. And so, um, you know, I really give uh, Bill Freeman and Bob Hall sort of credit for launching my career. And they uh, let me do, I remember, I remember, uh, Bob calling me up and saying, you know, we need an MC. We need to, someone to do a keynote at these conferences. Would you do it? And I was like, yeah, I hung up the phone. And I remember, you know, like thinking like, okay, I can MC because I used to MC open mics. And so I remember what like that was like, like bringing people up and, you know, yeah. transitioning from one act to another. And I, but then I remember turning to the person next to me and just being like, what's a keynote? <laughs> I, I don't know what that is, you know? Um, and, uh, but that was really great for me because it gave me an opportunity to start out by just working with empowering young people, right? Just, just directly with, you know, these incredible young leaders, you know, who wanted to learn how to be more active in their IEP meeting and, and um, wanted to get a better understanding about what their rights were. And, and then also, again, you know, being able to have mentorship from Bill and Bob um, and understanding what it took to navigate through, doing this work at the state level, you know, through a, yep. through a major bureaucracy, the state department of ed. And so, um, yeah, just stayed in New Jersey for the first two years out of college, um, was also simultaneously, um, working in real estate. And after two years, I started, started working nationally and connected with a bunch of different organizations. And I'm going to um, jump in and say, it didn't hurt that you were a black man, right? No. Hurt, you know, because I know when I did my first panel, you know, I was the only black person, black parent. And then I was from Baltimore City. A lot of people saw it coming up to me. And, you know, even now people reach out. It doesn't hurt because, again, I mean, we were in um, Portland together. Yes, we were. That's where we met. Yeah, that's where we met. We were at the um, International Dyslexia Association annual conference. And I was by myself. I, I didn't know anybody. And I said, oh, wow, I thought it was white in Maryland. Like, this is white, white. Portland, like, it was extra, right? <laughs> at the conference, yes. Yeah. Like, I had been at events, you know, here in Maryland, and, and, and my Maryland support group was awesome. But when we went to Portland, they were awesome. And when, and when folks saw that I was a member 
of the the grassroots organization, they they pulled me in. Like they were like, oh no, come here. And it, you know, I felt very comfortable. But as a parent, I'm looking around, right? And I'm like, wow, there's like a handful of black folks here. And this is an international conference. It was a huge conference. I know thousands of people had to have been in attendance because that place was packed. And when I tell you, I tried to take a selfie with every black person I saw, because I said, we up in here, we We want this information. We want to help our children. And truth be told, my support group at the time here in Baltimore city, they sponsored some of the the cost for me to go because they was like, we want you to go and bring that information back to us. Like, we want you to be there. And I connected with so many people. I learned so much information and I I could not help but recognize again, this is a very white space, right? And and we know that it's hereditary and we know that black and brown folks aren't learning to read. They may not all have dyslexia, but you can't tell me that a lot of folks are not being identified. We know that our young black people, black and brown folks are being under-identified, not identified, misdiagnosed, Right. And, and not getting the supports that they need. Um, and, and so they need to see more representation. Right. More people who have learning differences, who are advocating and speaking out and saying it's OK to be in special education. Right. You are fine. You are great. You learn differently. Yeah. And you, need to, you need the correct tools so that you can be successful. Well, it's I mean, it's been one of the long, the longstanding critiques is that, um, you know, and there was even a, a popular hashtag, you know, that uh, disability is too white, you know. Oh, wow. And, and that movement, that hashtag, you know, really got popular, really looking at the representation of people with disabilities within the media, right? And so, um, you know, I saw very few folks with disabilities growing up, you know, just disabilities, right? Like in movies and stuff like that. And then, you know, there were even fewer who were dyslexic and the ones that I can think of, so many of them were, were, were white folks, you know? And so it becomes increasingly hard for me to, to see myself, right? Sort of represented out there. Exactly. Um, A lot of black folks will tell you they saw that episode of the Cosby show. Cosby show. That was it. Yeah, Yeah, that was that was, you know, that was one of the ones that that stands out to me as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I I know that it is part of my responsibility to share my story and to do it in a way which is true to the totality of myself, and my identity, mm-hmm. uh, both as a, a person with a learning disability and also as a, as a black man. You know, and, and I can remember, you know, one of the first groups that I connected with was the was NASD, the National Association of State Directors of Education. And I ended up forming a, a relationship with that group. And they had uh, they were doing work around youth leadership and development in the transition process. And so I, I helped um, with being able to help, you know, really talk about the, the need and supporting the development of opportunities for young people and young adults with disabilities to be able to have a more active and more meaningful role in shaping the services and the supports that were being developed to support us, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, unfortunately, there's a lot of this programming and the material that gets developed, but like people with disabilities don't have a voice in it. And so uh, that was some of the first work that I, I remember doing uh, once I started working nationally. And I remember being at one of their national meetings and being on this panel and and yeah, just saying right out, like I thought that, you know, so much of the, the practices in special ed 
were, were racist, right? Like, and I could tell, you know, just from my own experience, like it just didn't make sense knowing what I know about sort of the natural distribution, distribution of uh, dyslexia throughout the human population. Like, why was I in school and in these classes and like nearly like 98% of the folks who were in those classes were black and brown boys, you know, it just didn't, it didn't make sense to me. Um, and, and, you know, one of the things that I've learned is that throughout the, the history of American education, you've got this interesting dynamic where almost at the same time as we are desegregating our schools for, for race, you also have the disability rights movement that is helping us to create special education to support people with disabilities. And so, like, as we're letting go of racial segregation um, in many of our school districts, we're creating a separate space within our school where, unfortunately, many folks with disabilities are for the first time being allowed in the building, but also still being segregated from everyone else. And so it's it's one of the things that um, I think is worth exploring is, you know, who gets the label of having a disability why is that used? Um, I think it speaks to some of the things that you talked about related to disproportionality, you know, if given a different time, you know, like, yes, I'm a person with dyslexia. Yes, I'm a person with a learning disability. You can also think of me as a genius who has a hard time with reading um, yeah. because I get all of my test scores and evaluations would also describe me that way. You know, the term twice exceptional is used quite a bit. Um, you know, I, that was not what I was, was seen as, you know, the label that the very, very first label that I was given when I was nine years old was that I was neurologically impaired, you know, which is not very empowering language. No, it's right? not. And it's not, see, that's the, it's not empowering language and it's meant to, it's meant to do exactly what it did. It's yeah. meant to discourage you, you know, after my daughter was diagnosed, I went in and I became, um, I switched careers because I felt like all the people that get in help are white. All the people that I know are, are wealthy and getting access to this information. So I became director of admissions of a special education school. So for a whole year, I got to read evaluations from different providers all across the state of Maryland. And when I tell you, I noticed a difference in the language and the words used to describe the same behavior of a white child versus a black child. The same, the same, ugh, same behavior, right? And then I started saying, well, let me look at the providers. Let me make a mental note of these providers, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm always looking at information and right. dissecting that information. And that could be my ADHD, right? But I noticed that and I'm like, this is unreal. Same child, but the language you use for a black little boy, aggressive. Right. Um, and, and what you use for a white little boy is, is different. And, and I noticed that. And I said, wow, you know, that, that's something else. And, and I, I, too, felt like I needed to help other parents because I didn't want another parent to experience some of what we experienced in our journey. And you guys will hear more about my journey later. Um, it, it came with a lot of privilege because of, of access to people that, that I knew, but I didn't want another black and brown family to go through what I was going through because I said, what about the ones who don't have the privilege that I have, right? And so therein lies why I do what I do and why I brought you here so we could have these <laughs> conversations around all things, you know, black and dyslexic. So I want to thank you so much for spending time with me today, right? We're in the other hat. 
not host today, but you know, being interviewed, being the interviewee. And you guys, look, Derek dropped some gems this evening. He told us, and these are things that I just want to stand out. He talked about mental health, how having a learning disability, you know, um, triggers characteristics of mental health, right? When we talk about being depressed, we talk about anxiety. He also talked about being given permission to make mistakes and what a difference that made. Not only was he given permission, but then he was provided with the appropriate supports and strategies to overcome right, to win over, we talked about that, you know, so he could thrive, right? So, so those were the key nuggets there. It triggers mental health. So if your kiddo is depressed, you know, they're acting out, don't just think it's behavior. Teachers don't just think it's behavior, think differently, right? Also given permission to make a mistake and then getting the supports and the strategies and the tools, right? Speech to tech, assistive technology, and, and the intervention so that he could be successful. Tune in next week, where we'll continue to bring you lived experiences and more unfiltered conversations with experts in the field around all things Black and dyslexic. Make sure you subscribe and follow the Black and Dyslexic podcast where we educate, empower, and equip Black and underrepresented minorities. The Black and Dyslexic Podcast is partially funded by Morgan Cares and the Center for Urban Health Disparities Research and Innovation, awarded by the National Institute of Minority Health and Health Disparities. The Black and Dyslexic Podcast is sponsored by Dyslexia Advocation Incorporated, a 501c3 charitable organization located in Baltimore City, Maryland, whose mission is to equip parents of children with dyslexia and other language-based learning disabilities with the necessary tools to help their children become successful readers. You can find them on the web at www.soallcanread.org.